I'm proud to say that I'm preaching on humility today. You're awake. Good. You're awake. You are awake. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians 2, where we will continue our series in Philippians. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2. You know, if, if I were to ask you this question, what one virtue would you desire to excel in more than any other virtue? What would you say? What virtue might you consider to be most important or maybe at least at the top of the list or maybe one that you would desire to improve in, you could use some work in? Now, if I were to ask that same question to a random person on the street, what virtue would they desire to excel in? I believe their answers would be different than your answers. I think their responses on the street might be something like, I'd like to be more winsome. I'd like to be more decisive, more organized, more confident. I'd like to be a self-starter, be more initiating in my life. I'd like this one I love. I'd like to believe in myself more. Wow, we just hear that way too much. But if I were to ask you the same question, if I were to ask believers what virtue they would desire more than any other to excel in, I think the answers would definitely be different. I think the answers might be, I'd like to be more loving. I think God wants me to be joyful, to have a joyful spirit with people. And God wants me to grow in patience. He wants me to be more generous. I think I'd like to grow in the virtue of being more generous, more kind, have more self-control, be more disciplined in many areas of life. More humble? Would, would that make your list? I know when you hear it, you go, well, of course. <laughs> but I'm not sure it's one of those that just necessarily flows off our lips when asked that question. Now, I haven't done the survey, but I'm confident the person on the street answering the question would most certainly not say, more humble, more lowly. I need to be more lowly. No, that is not where our culture is at at all. And very possibly, most believers would not choose humility as the virtue they would desire to excel in more than any other. It would more likely be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so forth. Right? I think that's fair to say. And yet, to grow in all the virtues requires humility. A stooping down, a, a loving someone requires humility to love them well. When we stop and think about it, no one enters the kingdom of God without humility. 
acknowledging I'm a sinner in need of a savior requires humility. Not only that, I think you'd agree that none of us grow in the grace of God without a greater acknowledgement of the need for humility. Pride can literally put the brakes on our spiritual growth. Pride can also limit our ability to be used by God. One author writes, the desire to put ourselves in the spotlight not only puts the emergency brakes on our spiritual growth, but actually puts our spiritual growth in reverse, he says. We are never more like the enemy than when we are trying to raise ourselves above others. For it was Satan who said in Isaiah 14, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then we could say, on the other hand, we are never more like Jesus Christ than when we are lowering ourselves to serve others. Humility, it could be argued, is the greatest virtue that we could possess. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Apostle Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. James tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Peter echoes James and adds, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It could be said that humility is indispensable, is an indispensable virtue in the spiritual life. In our passage today, look at chapter 2. In our passage today, look at verse 5 with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. What, what mind, Paul? What, what mind are you talking about? A mindset that is predisposed toward humility. A mindset or attitude of humility that we will see in our passage counts others more significant than yourselves. A mindset that looks not only to our own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus and is yours in Christ Jesus. That verse can be translated either way, which is yours in Christ Jesus or which was also in Christ Jesus. I think both work in our context. I don't often do this, but I think it's helpful when we look at this little phrase, have this mind, if we'll look at the Greek. Now, I'm not a Greek guy. Aaron's a Greek guy. I need to go to someone else to tell me that. And 
I thought it was interesting. We really see the incredible depth of Paul's words when we look at the Greek. First, it's in the present tense, which means always. Always have this mind. Not just some of the time. Always have this mindset of humility that was in Christ Jesus. It's in the imperative, which many of you know, it's a command. Have this mind. It's in the active voice, which means do it now. Take action now. Be about humility. And last, it's in the second person plural, which means it's for all of us. Is that not amazing that in the Greek there's that much in a small single phrase? So all of us in this have this mind, all of us are commanded to always be acting with the mindset of humility. This is the mindset that counts others more significant than ourselves and looks not only to our own interests, which we don't have any trouble doing that, do we? But instead looks to the interests of others as well. Now, we recognize that humility is not an easy topic to talk about. (laughs) This is not easy. It's easier to identify, I think you'd agree, to identify humility in someone else than in ourselves. But the moment you do set out to examine yourself and come to a place of feeling like I have a handle on it, all of a sudden, I think it becomes very elusive. Warren Wiersbe says, humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you lost it. (laughs) It's true, yeah. I have loved for some time a quote that I heard from Augustine. The reason I've loved this quote is because it reminds me of my father. (laughs) When my father was teaching me how to play golf, and there are a lot of elements that go into teaching somebody how to hit that little ball, I always knew, I always knew where my dad would finish. I always knew what would be the last words he would say to me before I hit the ball. He'd say, son... Three rules. Three rules to remember in hitting that golf ball. Number one, keep your head down. Number two, keep your head down. And number three, keep your head down. Augustine said the three most important things for a Christian to exhibit in the virtuous life, you got it. Number one, humility. Number two, humility. And number three, humility. It obviously cannot be overstated. To not understand the importance of humility in the spiritual life is equal to no growth. And to increase in our spiritual understanding of humility as it relates to the spiritual life equals growth in the spiritual life. So it's important to understand. 
as we look at our passage today, I can say, even if you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I think you would have agreement with me that humility is an essential virtue to merely being a good human being. I think all of us would agree that it is a, an important virtue, whether a believer or not. David B. Scrove states, humility is an essential virtue. If we don't figure out how to live it out, not just view it as some abstract thing, we will never learn how to get along. We will never learn how to be at peace with our neighbor. We will never learn how to be tolerant in the best possible sense of that word. And might I add, in the best possible biblical sense of the word tolerant. God wants us to be forgiving and in some ways, in many ways, tolerant of people. We want them to be that way. Treat others as you would desire to be treated. Let's look at our passage together. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me, won't you? Heavenly Father, I would just acknowledge as we look at this text, these are deep waters. Help us, help us, Lord, help me, Lord, as we talk about what you desire us to learn from this text. Lord, give us ears to hear. There is no way we can understand without the Spirit of God that lives within us, opening our eyes, revealing to us what you would have us see in this text that would 
directly apply to each one of us. Lord, that's the incredible thing about your word. Each one of us can take away different truths and different applications because you speak to each one of us individually. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do by your spirit in and through us. And we thank you as we began our service. We thank you for the word of God that we believe to be sufficient in every way for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, in chapter, the end of chapter one, Aaron pointed out Paul's desire for unity in the church at Philippi. Verse 27 says that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, Paul is calling the church at Philippi to be united as one. And he continues that call in chapter 2. Chapter 2 continues the call for unity and makes the case that unity will only be realized through humility. Unity will only be realized through humility. He does this in four segments. First, he starts and wants to convince them of the need for unity through humility through encouragement. He wants to encourage them and share with them the benefits of what it means to be in Christ. He wants to accomplish his task through exhortation. He wants to exhort them to love others and look at others more significant as themselves. He wants to teach them through the example of Jesus Christ. And then finally, through the exaltation of Christ. So, unity is necessary for the gospel to advance in the way that God has laid out in the scriptures. Paul knows they cannot be united if they are not humble. Mark Dever says, any unity manufactured apart from humility is a fraud. Unity manufactured apart from people humbling themselves for the sake of others would be a fraud. So Paul begins with his call to unity through encouragement. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It should not be surprising that Paul starts here. Where? Paul wants to emphasize right from the beginning that our union with Christ is what makes possible our union with each other. Our union with Christ is what makes possible our union with Christ. So is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any encouragement in knowing that you are in Christ? That's where Paul begins. So, 
if there is any encouragement, the word could be since. Paul is not wondering if this is true in these folks at Philippi. He knows it's true. So since I know that you know you have encouragement in Christ. You know that you are united with Christ. Paul knows they have found peace and assurance in being in Christ. He knows that. He doesn't wonder about that. He started the letter by just praising them for what they're doing in Christ. Are you encouraged would be the question this morning. Are, are you encouraged this morning that you are united in Christ. Christ wants you to to live in that encouragement. God knows you. God loves you. He's forgiven you. He's justified you. You're adopted as a child of God. You are a new creation in Christ. Let me read just some verses. 2 Timothy, he gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Is that not an incredible truth? Ephesians 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And finally, Philippians 4, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants to encourage the Philippians to walk in unity in light of the benefits that they have as a result of being in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions in Christ. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that if we spent two minutes at the beginning of each day reviewing a verse or two that tells us about what we have in Christ, our lives would be changed. We would be changed by understanding who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. Two minutes, our lives would be changed. Now, when I wrote that down, you might think less of me after you know this, by the way. When I wrote that down, I could not get that phrase out of my mind. The next two minutes could change your lives. Anybody know where that's at? America's Got Talent, Simon the Judge. America's Got Talent. Brenda and I love watching it. I'll just tell you right out. That's good. Simon the Judge says the next two minutes on this stage could change your lives. I believe, I believe spending a couple minutes at the beginning of each day reviewing who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. Just go to Bible Gateway, type in, in Christ, and look at all the verses that there are that reflect what we have in Christ. Pick one, look that verse up in your Bible, and read it in context, and be encouraged that day of who you are in Christ, seated in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. So, the benefits of being in Christ, Paul wants to remind them, for the sake of unity. But there's more. Is there any comfort from love? It says in verse 1. No one loves us like Jesus. Paul wants to remind them, no one loves you like Jesus does. 
Have you been encouraged and comforted knowing that you are loved by Christ? He comforts us in grief and fear and pain. His love holds us when we lose our grip. We sang that song that talks about the fact that he holds us and will never let us go. Never let us go. So, Romans 8 some of the most precious words in all of the Bible. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's more. Unity in Christ, (laughs) comfort in his love, And finally, he says, is there any participation in the Spirit? Do you have fellowship? That word participation is koinonia, is fellowship. Do you have fellowship in the Spirit? Have you experienced fellowship as a result of being a child of God and being indwelt by the Spirit of God and being with people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God? Have you Receive some encouragement in that. The Spirit of God seals us for all of eternity. If there is any one reason why there should be unity in the church, it could be found here. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. We are one. We are united in Christ. In light of these incredible benefits... United in Christ, loved by Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, Paul says, what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's amazing how Paul gets here. We could learn much from Paul. I could learn much from Paul. There are issues that Paul is addressing in his letter regarding the Philippian church. And he will become more direct in addressing those issues later on. But first, he wants to remind them of all that they have in Christ. Let's not deal with that stuff yet. Let me just remind you of who you are in Christ. D.A. Carson's Exposition of Philippians, I think there's a couple copies left, says, when we see failures in a Christian or a fellowship, when we see failures in a Christian or in a fellowship, our natural tendency is either to be critical or simply to demand improvement. Paul's response is wiser and deeper. He recognizes that only through grace are we able to change and develop a pattern of transformed attitudes and actions. So he constantly appeals to the privileges of grace before urging us to the obedience of faith. Paul, you might say, at this point in time, I just had a picture in my mind that all of his readers, if they're reading it together, which is what they did, 
all of his readers are going, yes, Paul. Oh, you are so right. Thank you for reminding us of all that we have in Christ. Thank you. And then Paul says, do you know what what would really make my day? (laughs) Do you know? Do you know what would complete my joy? Walk in unity. Have this mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. The reason for verse 1 is that Paul is wanting to walk them down the road, reminding them that the things that unite them are far greater than the things that divide them. The things that unite us in Christ are far greater than the things that we might tend to disagree on. They're not that important. They're just not that important. We agree on the big things. So be united, Paul says. Be united. I wrote here after that. (laughs) And all God's people said, amen. That's right. I mean, what unites us is far greater than what divides us. We could end it right here. We really could. We really could. But we're not going to. (laughs) It sounds like a great ending. No, but Paul wants now, having reminded them of that, he wants to dig a little deeper. (laughs) And that's what we see here in these next verses. He wants to answer the question, where does this disunity come from? What, why is there this disunity? What, what is it? Paul has merely made the first point through encouragement, sharing the benefits of Christ, and next he wants to call them to unity through exhortation. Paul wants to call them to something. Paul recognizes that we tend to naturally lock in on the things that divide us rather sometimes than the things that unite us. He knows that. So, he wants to answer why. Why is that? Verse 3 and 4, look with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul identifies where disunity comes from here, right? Did you see it? From selfish ambition or conceit. That's where it comes from. First, he asserts that disunity flows from selfish ambition. Disunity arises when we look to advance our own agenda. This sin always seems to be crouching at the door, our agenda. Out of Genesis, it says that. We can be sure that this sin will, to varying degrees, be with us always, won't we? We know, we know. We're not going to forget about our own interests, It will be a lifelong fight. It is at the core of our fallen nature. This selfish ambition, this strife or rivalry, demanding our own way, it is with us from cradle. (laughs) Moms, (laughs) dads, from cradle to toddler. Oh my gosh, 
from toddler to an overconfident teen. Oh boy, right? From overconfident teen to a parent of a toddler. Now I'm a parent. (laughs) To parents of overconfident teens, to empty nesters, to retirees, to the one in the nursing home. It follows us. It follows us. Throughout our lives, we can be perturbingly, persistently selfish. I use that word perturbingly because sometimes I think I perturb Brenda a bit. Maybe even a little bit more as I get older. I'm not sure. But you are growing much more in grace than I am. Thank you very much for that. It's a good word, though, isn't it? Perturbingly and persistently selfish. What are some subtle examples of how we are selfish? A husband gets a new job that he's really excited about, but his wife instantly thinks how it will mean less time for her and the kids. A mom is really excited about a new curriculum that she found. And with it, there are some ladies that will come alongside her to help her in this homeschooling process. She is really excited, and dad walks in the door. And she says, oh, sweetheart, I'm so excited about Sweetheart, I've, I've just really had a long day. <laughs> I just need my recliner. Can you just hold on to that for a bit? A mom finds out that her child's new teacher at school that she really likes is pregnant. And instead of rejoicing with her regarding the new baby, the new life, she thinks, oh my gosh, who's going to be the next teacher? Who's going to teach my Johnny? They're not going to probably be as good as this one is. So again, we, we go to that place pretty quickly. And finally, this one hits home. You're leading a Bible study, and the person who signed up to bring the snacks in the last minute calls you, and they're sick. <laughs> and you fret over the snack rather than praying for your sick brother or sister. Right? It's so true. Some of you may be familiar with this song. I always do a song, right? This song that says, It's all about me, Jesus, and all this is for me, and my glory and my fame. It's not about you. Oh, That's not right, is it? (laughs) That's not right. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me. As if you should do things my way. You alone are God. And I surrender to your will. How and why do we tend to get that mixed up? Don't we? We really do get that mixed up? What drives us to that place? The answer is found in Paul's next word. Conceit. Conceit means literally vain glory. It's for my glory. 
and my fame. That's vain glory. No one else's, and I'm not sharing it with anybody. One author describes it as being starved for glory. We are starved. Our flesh is starved for glory. I do what I do because it gives me significance, purpose, and meaning. Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 123 helps here, I think. We exchanged the glory of the God who holds the whole world in his hands for a cheap figurine you can buy at any roadside stand. I've traveled through Tijuana and Southern California and they all stand by the side of the road and they sell these figurines. Having our own way, we know this. We know this. Having our own way results in fleeting momentary satisfaction. God designed us to find ultimate satisfaction in him, in Christ. That's where we find real significance and purpose and satisfaction. And Paul already reminded us of what we have in Christ. And now he tells us that real significance and unity is found where? It's found humbly giving ourselves away. Verse 3, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul concludes his exhortation where we began in some sense today in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? It's all of us are commanded to always be acting in a mindset of humility, of others being more important than ourselves. Tim Keller said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul, in calling his readers, that includes you and me, to true humility, has woven his argument through encouragement, through exhortation, and now he wants to talk about the example. The example of Jesus Christ. And now he includes in his argument the example of perfect humility. He calls us to look to Jesus as the example. As I read, would you allow me this text, this text, as you study this text, many would claim that this next text is the pinnacle of all of Scripture as it describes Christ. Verses 6 through 8 and 9 through 11, as the pinnacle. Allow me to, as one pastor used to often say, let's not get our theological ball lost in the weeds. It is easy to do in this text to possibly get distracted 
examining what the text means rather than acknowledging what Paul is wanting to do in displaying the perfect example in Christ Jesus. We need to understand the text. And we could spend weeks on looking at Philippians 2, 6 through 11. But allow me, if you would, to interject some things as I read the text for the sake of time, for the sake of clarity. I want to remind us why this text is here. It's here to provide us with the perfect pattern for humility. And Paul wants his readers to take hold of the fact that in Christ, the call to humility is possible. Because of who Christ is and what he has done, the call that we have on our lives for humility is possible. But it is only possible through Christ. So let's dive into Christ's perfect example. Christ, verse 6 who though he was in the form of God, though he was in the very nature God, though he was God. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what they understand him to be writing. Though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Grasp is kind of reaching for it, Christ didn't have to reach for equality with God. He was God. He was equal with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he didn't have to grasp for it. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself, not of any of his deity, but rather some of the privileges that went along with him being God. He emptied himself of some of those privileges. And how did he do that? He went from glory to becoming by taking the form of a servant. He was one who came to be to serve, not to be served. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, the God-man, our perfect example. Goes from glory to becoming man because he's thinking of others, not himself, becomes a servant. So this example, thinks of others, becomes a servant. We're called to be servants like Christ. And lastly, sacrifices his life for our sake. We're called to sacrifice for the sake of unity, for Christ for humility, in humility, we're called to sacrifice for others, to give our lives away in various ways. All of us are gifted, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. All of us have various gifts, 11 and 12, various gifts. All of us called to give them away, to sacrifice our lives in ways that God has gifted us. 
So, does Paul put Jesus' example here merely as inspiration for us? I don't think so. I think Paul senses the question that remains in the minds of his readers and may remain in you here today. Paul, how do I do this? <laughs> how, how do I do this? I can't live up to that example. I see my tendency toward wanting my own way every single day. How do I do this, Paul? And Paul says, you don't have to. Christ did it for you. Christ, our Savior, our example of perfect humility has done it for you. It is finished. God has laid on him our sins, our sins of selfish ambition, of conceit. And by his obedient death credits his perfect righteousness to us. Our sin laid on Christ, his righteousness laid on us. He has done it. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Begin each day acknowledging that I'm in Christ and the Spirit of God lives within me and gives me strength to carry out what he's called me to. He, actually, the words in that first chapter that preface Philippians 1.6. I don't have it on a slide for you. You know it very well. But I love the first words. I am sure of this, Paul said. I am confident, I am certain of this fact. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 11 say, Therefore God, because of Christ's obedient example, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture clearly says that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Christ is that perfect example. We see it is true with Christ. God has highly exalted him. And as certain as it is true for Christ, so too will our God without exception exalt those who are his in Christ. We will follow Christ in being exalted as a result of being in him. To God be the glory. Amen.
Pray with me, won't you? Heavenly Father, we look to Jesus. It tells us elsewhere to look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We look to Jesus as our example, acknowledging the fact that we will not do it perfectly as he did. There is forgiveness, there is grace, and that is what humility reflects. Lord, free us from, at times, the hold that selfish ambition, wanting our own way, and conceit, wanting our glory. Forgive us. Forgive us when we begin to compare ourselves to others, which at times results in competing, you might say. It's not a competition. We are one in Christ Jesus, one body. We have nothing that we have not received. Remind us of that, Lord. Look to Jesus and be reminded that loving and serving each other as Jesus did is a path that ultimately we will experience the greatest joy of all. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we look to you for help in this area of humility. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.